Jonah chapter 2. We're going to jump right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover this evening. You guys saw the bulletin and saw two chapters. You thought, impossible. We'll find out. Okay. Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll actually just recap, recap real quick. Uh, from chapter 1 so far, we've looked at primarily our responsibility, right? It's our responsibility. It's our command. It's our duty to deliver the message of salvation to all people. That was kind of the, the main message uh, of chapter 1 as it points to Jesus. The whole chapter points to Jesus. And we are to then carry that message of Christ, of the salvation that he gave us um, to all people, even those we falsely consider to be unworthy, undeserving, or beyond the scope of God's love. It doesn't matter. We have a responsibility to go and take his word, take the gospel to everyone. So now we, as we kind of move into this next subsection of the book here in chapters 2 and 3, uh, we're going to look at what true repentance should look like in our own hearts and our lives, uh, beginning with crying out to the Lord for forgiveness, followed by an awareness that our sin has consequences that only the Lord can save us from, and then finally committing or recommitting to intentionally walking with the Lord according to his ways. Um, Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it's the same thing. (laughs) Jonah kind of represents a believer here as we study his prayer. The Ninevites represent unbelievers, obviously, as they were a pagan culture. Jonah knew the Lord. But the, the method, I guess, of repentance in that sense, the different aspects are the same regardless because God honors repentance regardless of who it's coming from, right? So, Let's jump in. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And we'll stop there. <laughs> this is one of those... Okay, so why did it take so long? Right, right off the bat, we finish in verse 17 of chapter 1. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then it says, Then Jonah prayed. Right? Then Jonah prayed. After three days and three nights. And we talked about a couple weeks ago how it's not, that was not an actual full 72 hours, but the idea is still there. It's a matter, a length of time that he's just sitting there and is wondering what in the world could possibly be going on that occupied his time instead of prayer, right? Like what is, he's just sitting in stomach juices, I guess, like marinating in gastric fluid, just wondering like eventually this, I don't understand how it took him that long to be like, I guess I'll pray. Like this seems like a good idea to do. But in this verse right away, we can cue the controversy over the interpretation of what is going on here. There's a lot of debate over what happens to Jonah during these three days before he begins his prayer. In verse 2, many will believe and teach that he actually died and somehow they came back to life or returned um, and then prayed. Or he's praying from Sheol or he's praying from hell or Hades, this temporary or permanent kind of place of, of wickedness and then returning. I do not hold to either of those interpretations for a few reasons. The, the first one being just kind of this simple surface level issue, and this, it's a little bit conjecture, but I'm, I'm trying to think if I'm Jonah and as I'm writing this book, if that was something that was actually happening to me and I was conscious of it happening, like I was conscious of going to Sheol, hanging out there for a couple, little while and then coming back, like I would want to put that in here. That's kind of, that's kind of a big deal. Right? Again, it's conjecture. That first one is just kind of conjecture, but you would think they would be included. Not that it had to be, but you would think it would be included. Secondly, in regards to this idea of him praying from Sheol, that is kind of excluded right off the back when he says he prayed to the Lord of his God from the fish's belly. Right? He's not praying from Sheol. He's not praying from Hades, which we'll, we'll talk more about those two places a little bit later. Um, but to say that he is praying from one of those places is either borderline or really crossing the line into the, the concept of purgatory. And that is a false satanic doctrine that the Bible does not teach. And so if you've heard that preached before, I'm not saying in regards to like someone's faith, but that's heresy. He's not, there's no purgatory here, okay? He's not praying from Sheol. Thirdly, we must remember that Jonah is simply a type of Jesus, all right, here's a picture pointing to Christ that Jesus then refers back to in Matthew 12 and Luke 9, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, as I was thinking about that, I, w- I was wondering if this was one of the passages in, uh, in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is mentioning, you know, that uh, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures a thing concerning himself. I wonder if he pointed to this passage. But we have to remember, Jonah is simply a type of Jesus. Jonah, in itself, the story, the account of Jonah is not a doctrine. It's not a doctrine. It's just meant for us to, to learn things from 
to point to Christ, and there's no need to force an extreme interpretation to make it fit with what happened to Jesus exactly. I think there's a lot of danger in that because I don't see any reason to say that Jonah had to die. That way, when Jesus referenced him, it would make more sense and it would line up very parallel. If you take that idea too far, then Jonah would also have to descend into darkness and preach to the spirits in prison. Which, I mean, if you want to take it literally, right, and you want to try to make those connections, that's kind of, it's dangerous to do that. So this idea that Jonah had to die is, is, is false. It's exactly the opposite. Jesus had to die. Like, that makes sense. We know he had to die. There was no other way. That's how he saved the world. Right? He's the propitiation for our sins. He had to die and be resurrected. Jonah didn't have to die to save the mariners, to save the people on the boat. When Jonah was thrown overboard and then swallowed by the fish, that's how he saves the people in the boat. Not by dying. They were saved the minute he hit the water. Okay? It wasn't when he died that they were saved. So if they're saved when he hit the water, what would be the point of them, him dying after that fact? What would even be the lesson in it for us? Or for him, even? He did not have to die to save them. So we don't want to take those extreme kind of jumps and leaps just to try to make something connect when fourthly, really the most kind of obvious reason of them all as to why in this idea that he had to die, that he's, he's praying from Sheol, is that there is no scripture that says that Jonah died. It's mute. Scripture is mute on what happens during these three days, and therefore we should be mute on it as well instead of trying to make a stab in the dark. Now, agree or disagree with me, that's totally fine. Like... You know, this, not, this is not a, a, a divisive verse that we want to get hung up on. The essentials, we're talking about unity in Ephesians. Like, this is not one of those things. But we also want to be very careful of kind of jumping to conclusions and filling in the gaps where the word is silent. And if we get too hung up on that, then we kind of miss the whole theme and the whole point of the miracle. It's not like necessarily a fish swallowing someone is impossible. What is more impossible is the likelihood that he stayed alive <laughs> during that entire time. Right? So we don't want to miss out on the miracle just because we're getting hung up on just kind of conjecture and, and guessing and, and stabbing in the dark. But it says he prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And I love the phrase when he writes to the Lord his God, this ownership now, it's not just praying to Jehovah as the God of Israel, but it is addressing him as his God, praying to Jehovah is my God. Jehovah is my God and who he is who I'm crying out to. And so he begins praying, verse 2. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So to begin to break this prayer down, there's a couple things I just want to know. First of all, this is a as just kind of a uh, blue sky point of view, this is a prayer of thanksgiving. And it is a prayer of thanksgiving in recognition of the Lord's supernatural preserving of Jonah's life through him being swallowed by the fish. Maybe that's why it took him so long to come to prayer. Maybe he was unconscious or maybe he was just conscious enough to realize like, oh wait, maybe this, I'm still alive <laughs> and I should pray to the Lord because I thought I was going to die and I realized I should thank the Lord for that. So I'm going to cry out to the Lord. Who knows? But it is, it is a prayer of thanksgiving. Secondly, this prayer essentially is just a compilation of psalms, which I think is really beautiful. It's not always directly correlated word for word to psalms, but it always matches a certain theme that you can find in, in a chapter in psalms, which I think is beautiful because it shows us two things. is One, that Jonah knew the word, and two, is he knew it by heart. He knew the word by heart, and he knew what parts of, of which psalm to pray that was perfectly suited to the situation that he found himself in, and it's, it, that is just encouraging because I'm sure we've all been there when we just don't know how to express uh, an emotion or a feeling or crying out to God and just the importance of when you don't know what words to use, just use scripture. But that also means that it has to be written on our hearts. 
So, and then thirdly, this prayer outlines for us those three things I mentioned about what true repentance really looks like in regards to crying out to the Lord, an awareness of our sin, and then recommitting or committing to walking with the Lord again. So it begins, Jonah says, with this cry out for deliverance. And I'll kind of mention, I won't, we're not going to go there, but I'll, I'll mention the correlation of a psalm with these verses as we go along. So this one would be a Psalm 120, verse 1. It says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. So the use of the word Sheol here is not to be used to prove that Jonah went there and is praying from there. Okay, that's not, that's not good exegesis of the word. The word Sheol in Old Testament has a broader definition than the word Hades in the New Testament. Hades is a spe- specific place of torment that we see in Luke chapter 16 between the rich man and Lazarus. That, that account, it mentions, you know, the rich man goes to Hades and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, Right. That's Luke 16, verse 19 through 31, if you want to look that up. But Sheol has a broader sense of the word. It can refer to that place where wicked people go specifically, but it can also have a more broader sense of just meaning the grave, or in in this sense, kind of being used as an idiom. We read in our scripture uh, reading in Psalm 18, verses 3 through 5, when uh, David writes, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. When David's writing this psalm, he's not in Sheol. He's writing this psalm in praise of God for deliverance from God protecting his life from the hand of Saul. So he's not writing this song from Sheol. That's not what David is saying there. In Psalm 86, verse 13, writes again, great is your mercy toward me and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Again, he's not being delivered from hell. So this phrase, this idea of being crying out of the belly of Sheol is just a a used word that is an idiom to kind of communicate this being in the most intense place of emotional or physical torment that you could possibly be in. Right? It's essentially saying, I've been through hell on earth, or I'm crying out from essentially what is, what is hell on earth, and the most intense place of emotional or physical torment I could, I could imagine or that I've ever been, been in, the worst place you could imagine, this is what I feel like is going on inside of me. And so he's crying out to the Lord. In verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, all your billows and your waves passed over me. I find it very interesting at the beginning of that verse when he says, you cast me into the deep. He accredits the Lord with throwing him into the sea, not the mariners, not the people on the boat. It was the Lord's doing. There's must be an understanding, even in all that Jonah has gone through, that he realizes maybe he's never actually been out of God's hands. Like maybe it was still, God is still sovereign over it all. He was the Lord who allowed them to do that, but it was the Lord who cast him into the deep. In correlation, there would be Psalm 42, verse 7. Verse 4, then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, given, given the circumstances, it would certainly feel like he had been cast out of the Lord's sight. Like, I, I've been there, I maybe, I'm sure all of us have maybe been there one or the other, where you're just like, Lord, where are you? What is going on? Now, granted, this is a lot of times, like Joan, it's because of our own decisions <laughs> that we're in that place. But regardless, it, the result is still the same, that we feel like we're just completely disconnected from the Lord. Cast out of his sight entirely. But what I read when I, or what I hear when I, when I read that, is I see in some ways it shows, I think, that the physical consequences of sin didn't pain him as bad as knowing that his sin had separated him from God. Like he's going through it all, he's enduring these kind of trials and tribulations, he's in the belly of a fish, but he's crying out saying, I've been cast out of your sight. It pains me, it aches me out of the belly of Sheol to to know that what I've done has made it feel like I've been cast out of your sight. But he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. I will look again toward your holy temple. I know I've made a mistake, but I will still worship you. And we sang this evening about the love of God, right? comes with no conditions. <laughs> he gave us his whole heart. Our sin should never 
drive us away from the Lord in guilt and shame. It should always push us closer to the Lord, realizing our desperate need for him. That, <laughs> if we're standing and we realize, like, God doesn't love me anymore, like, I made a mistake, I can't approach him, and, and we shy away from him, that's exactly what, the opposite of what the Lord, that's what the enemy wants you to do. It's exactly the opposite of what the Lord wants us to do. We're to press in closer. We're to repent. We're to go a different direction. We're to cry out to the Lord. We're to cry out for his forgiveness. I think this is a cool correlation to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30, as Solomon is praying as he's dedicating the temple. In verse 30, he says, part of his prayer, Solomon says, May you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. I think that's just, that's just cool. He says, I'm going to look again toward your holy temple. I know what Solomon has said when he dedicated the temple. That's where I was serving and ministering. I kind of want to get it out of there. That's why I'm in this position to begin with. But I know I will look again toward your holy temple. There's this you know, assurance or supernatural assurance even of his deliverance, even though he knows he doesn't deserve it. That when, when I make it out of this, God, I'm going to look again. I'm going to face your holy temple I'm going to pray towards your temple, and I will know that you hear me. In correlation in verse 4 there is Psalm 31, 22. Verse 5, the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed in around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. That word weeds, it literally translated seaweed. Um, as he's praying this from the fish's belly, I mean, I guess it could literally be referring to <laughs> seaweed wrapped around his head. Um, I mean, the heck, squid, seaweed, other fish, who knows what was going on in there. Um, I thought that also could be the figurative uh, kind of application of just describing how he felt entangled and trapped within the fish's belly and being taken down to the deep. In verse 6, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. That word moorings just means the, the extremities, the foundation, the bottom. He's saying, I went down to the deepest parts of the sea, to the, to the foundation of the mountains that were under the sea, to the point where it felt like the earth shut its bars behind me. There was no going back. But it says, you have brought, me up, brought up my life from the pit. He wasn't even out of the pit yet when he's praying this. He's still technically there. <laughs> in symbolism. But he's saying, you have rescued me from the pit, Jehovah, O Lord, my God, Jehovah, my God. It's just good to know even in the midst of that and for us too to know that we can still praise God for an answer to prayer even before it's answered. The answer may not always be what we want it to be, but we can praise him knowing he hears us and that he is going to answer to us. Right, we read that again at the end of our uh, scripture reading as well, right? He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. From our lips to his ears. And so Jonah realizes, like I'm aware of the situation I'm in and I'm aware of the consequences because of what my sin has done and I am aware that it's only the Lord who can rescue me from this. And so he recommits himself to the Lord in verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. I had nothing. <laughs> Have you ever been there when your soul fainted within you? But that's a descriptive phrase. I have nothing left to give. The, the New Living Translation says, as, as my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. It's, it's sad sometimes that it takes those kind of circumstances in our life to turn back to the Lord. That it takes us getting to the point of my soul fainting within me or to the point where it feels like, God, my life is just slipping away. I'll turn back to you now. That's where Jonah was. Better to turn back then than never, I suppose. But the correlation of verse 7 would be Psalm 18, verse 6, which is part of our scripture reading what we just read. He says, my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Again, he knew that God would hear him. He knew. Even in the belly of a fish in the deepest part of the sea, he knew the Lord would hear him. Which again encourages the idea we talked about way back at the beginning of 
uh, chapter 1, that he was not trying to physically run from the physical presence of the Lord, but simply running from serving the Lord in a specific way. Because he's still confident the Lord hears him when he's at the bottom of the sea. Just as an observation. And if he can hear us from there, then he can hear us from anywhere. (laughs) And we can cry out to him in any situation, at any time. But then he finishes the prayer in verse 8. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. If you're going to pursue worthless idols, or the King James Version, that phrase worthless idols, is lying vanities. If that's what you're going to pursue, then we forsake the mercy of God. If that's what our heart is going after, then we forsake the mercy of God. You pursue those things, you've decided to reject his mercy, his chesed, that God's faithful loving kindness towards you, his mercy. The consequences are going to be on you if you decide to pursue the lying vanities and the worthless idols of this world. It is on you and it is on me. We forsake God's mercy. doesn't mean he's not merciful by any means. But if we're going to just resist God and, and run from him and run from his will and run from what he has clearly laid out for us in his word and how we should live our lives, then we may as well just be idolaters seeking after lying vanities. Vanities in the sense like it's not going to fulfill anything, right? Solomon writes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. All means nothing. Nothing means anything. Super encouraging. But if we look around at the world, I mean, how true is this? <laughs> How true is this when you see the way the world lives after for their own selfish desires, their own pleasures, their own idols, even if it's just living for themselves? And then they wonder why God, and then they're angry at God because of their actions. Oh, why isn't God merciful? Isn't God good? Well, yeah, but I mean, you're not living according to his word. <laughs> like you're for pursuing worthless idols. And he says there, you forsake your own mercy. It doesn't mean we cry out for his mercy, because if the church isn't going to cry out for his mercy, then who is? Like, that is our role. Essentially, we're standing in defense in behalf of the world around us from the Lord pouring out his judgment on the world. If we're not crying out for his mercy in our own lives, but in, in the world as a whole, then who is? The totality of God's judgment is not being poured out because we're still here. The church is still here. Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Vivid. Vivid. But not, like, it's probable. (laughs) That makes sense. We see the world around us. Well, we should still be crying out for his mercy. But it doesn't mean judgment's not coming. And the world is living as if it isn't pursuing lying vanities, worthless idols, forsaking their own mercy. If we're putting something else in our lives in the place of the worship and authority that only God deserves, then we should not have any expectation to receive the mercy of the Lord. Thankfully, Jonah had done this thing. (laughs) He had realized it. He put himself, his own needs, his own desires before obedience to the Lord. And he realizes it and he repents. In verse 9 he says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah's repentant heart leads him to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving for the Lord's mercy that was bestowed on him and the way the Lord preserved and delivered him. Now he's probably thinking, everything in here is already dead, Lord, but <laughs> I'll give you what I have. I'm going to offer my voice of thanksgiving as a sacrifice to you. I will lift up my praises unto you. And I will pay what I have vowed. I am going to fulfill that which I promised to the Lord. And I think we've all probably been there, right? We've either said one of two things in our lives. We've either said, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to. And then he tells us what he wants us to do, and we're like, oh shoot. Like, not that. That's not, that's not what I had in mind at all. I meant more, a lot of times what we mean when we say that is, I'll do whatever you want me to as long as it's something that I want to do or something that I feel like doing. A lot of times it's what we mean when we say that. My cousin, he loves the Lord. We've been on a mission trip together. I remember quite a few years ago, he told the Lord 
He told me that he told the Lord that he would never go minister in the Middle East. And a year later, guess what? He was on a plane, on a plane going. In my own life, I told the Lord I never wanted to teach the word. I want to serve you, Lord, but I kind of want to serve you on my terms. As long as it's something I want to do, I want to serve you. It ties into a lot of conviction from Will's message this morning. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to it, and if you're listening to this later, then go listen to it in Ephesians 4, chapter 7, or chapter 4, verse 7. But, so we all have probably said that before, maybe. Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to. Or maybe we've all been in a place where we'll be like, if you get me out of this, Lord, I will do X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. We should never be saying either of those things to the Lord unless we are willing to pay what we are vowing. Unless we're willing to follow through with what we're saying to the Lord. That's essentially what we do. We, don't, we think of vows sometimes, I think, as like these big, like demonstrative kind of things. And really, that's essentially, it's just your word. Unless you're 100% ready to do whatever he asks of you, regardless of what it costs you. Or you're going to follow through with it, with what you promised to the Lord. You got to be careful in saying those kind of things. Lord takes that very seriously. We, we take him at his word. And he takes us at ours. And he holds us accountable to that. I remember, man, I guess it was like six, seven years ago now. The, my wife and I, Leah, and I were praying about going into the mission field. And I was so sure that's what God wanted, wanted us to do. And we went down to uh, Chile, where we were ministering. And essentially, I just brought her along so that way the Lord could confirm that's what he wanted her to do. <laughs> or convince her, because I was very confident that's what the Lord wanted us to do. So I was maybe not going down with the right heart. Obviously, I'm still here. So that was not what the Lord's will was for us. But what I learned, what we learned through that was, the point was not that that's what he wanted for us. The point and the lesson he wanted us to learn was that we would be willing to do that if he asked us to. That there was no reservation that if we said, Lord, I'm going to go do this for you, then we're, we're willing to do it. And we'll follow through and we'll be obedient to that. We'll pay what we have vowed. That's what Jonah's saying here. I'll pay what I have vowed. I promise to do this. I'm going to fulfill that. I'm going to follow through. In regards to this idea of just saying like, oh, if you get me out of this, Lord, I'll just do this, this, and this. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 through 6, Solomon writes, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better it's not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Don't just kind of run off the mouth and just be like, oops, I know I said that, but I didn't really mean it. I'm just kind of caught up in this emotion. It sounded, it sounded good at the time, but I didn't really mean that before the Lord. It's, if we have that kind of rash speaking without thinking, it gets people in a lot of trouble. Uh, for reference, you can read Judges 11 in the story of Jephthah. <laughs> but if you're in that place this evening, and you've told the Lord something, but you've not followed through with it, I just encourage you, tonight's the, tonight is the night to commit to doing that. If you said, I'll do whatever it is you told me to, then do it. If you told the Lord, I'll pay what I vowed unto you, follow through with it. Be a, a man and a woman of your word, you've committed this to the Lord, because he takes that very seriously. And he ends his prayer in verse 9 by saying, salvation is of the Lord. This triumphant de declaration that, and realization that only the Lord can save me from this predicament. Only the Lord can save me. Not just his own personal salvation from a situation, but surely salvation for all mankind. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen? And praise God it's not of man. <laughs> praise God it's not of any way, shape, or form from man. And so as we approach the end of this prayer, it's, it is obvious to me that, that Jonah has repented. And, I, and there are a few other places that we've read so far from the beginning of chapter 1 where it seems like he's already done this. And as we move into chapter 4, it seems like he hasn't learned anything <laughs> at all. As even, even as we go into chapter 3, you kind of get a little glimpse of his heart still. But I think that just shows us an, one, an important aspect of repentance is that 
it's more than a one-time thing. <laughs> it is a continual going before the Lord, a continual crying out to him, a continual awareness of our sin, a continual awareness that only he can save us from our sin, and a continual recommitting to walking in his ways according to his word. The process that must continue and it must mature. It must mature. But once this punishment has done its job, it sanctified Jonah, right? It's 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Paul writes, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This is godly sorrow. (laughs) It's serving its purpose. He's come to that place of true repentance, and now, because he's there, God honors that with deliverance in verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The Lord spoke to the fish. At the Lord's command, the fish swallowed him, and at the Lord's command, the fish is going to release him. The creator of all things, subject to him. I'm not getting caught up on if it was a fish, a leviathan, whatever, okay? It doesn't matter. He's the creator of all things. You ever wonder how often the Lord talks to animals? <laughs> you see this? Like sometimes, you know, like it's got to be nice every once in a while to just have a conversation with something that doesn't resist your will. Like, right? Every once in a while? Like, Oh, Eric's just doing his thing again. Fly over his car and poop on his hood after he just washed it. Go do this. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's the creator. Why not? He probably talks to animals. I don't think the squirrels running across the road are obeying the Lord, but, you know, I never know. But it says it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Everything about this verse, there's just so many images. It's so descriptive in some ways. But as the Lord brings him to this place of deliverance, part of the deal when the Lord is the one delivering you is that you don't really have much say in how you're being delivered. <laughs> okay, Lord, like, I just, I've repented. If you could just like open the fish's mouth, I'll just like swim right out. <laughs> no, like, he's like, nope. You know. In reality, though, Jonah, Jonah should be happy to be this way because there's worse ways to be expelled from animals, I guess. <laughs> I told you, it's vivid. I'm never getting asked to do this again. (laughs) It says he vomited him onto dry land. Now, we don't know exactly where, what dry land he's being vomited onto. I kind of like to think that he spits him out back where he started his journey to Tarshish. Just because, like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be like the Lord to bring him right back to the place where he took the necessary steps to run away and give him a second chance? That's just, that's just my, my thought. Um, but he couldn't have spat him near Nineveh. Nineveh was like 375 miles away from the Mediterranean Sea where all this is going on. So it would have been quite the projectile <laughs> vomit. There's a lot of power behind that. I don't think he would have survived that fall. I mean, maybe the fish just kind of, like, I mean, beached himself and just kind of like, bleh, him? I don't think so. It's a much more descriptive, forceful kind of image here. Just close enough to the beach where he <laughs> Jonah just kind of face plants in the sand. Like, what if people are there? Like, what if people are just like laying on the beach, on the land or whatever, they're just walking by and then like, out of nowhere, like out of the water, this dude just flies <laughs> and he lands on the ground next to him. That's wild. They're just enjoying their lemonade and then all of a sudden this like, bleached skin, hair missing from the gastric juices dude just like <laughs> lands on the ground right next to him. Crazy. So we don't know where on dry land, but he spits him out to dry land. Maybe it's bringing him back to Joppa and he gives him the choice again. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time and aren't you so glad that we serve a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. And I, I truly believe it is just in the Lord's nature that he loves to come to us a second time. He loves to reveal that's who he is to his kids. I mean, he sent the Lord. Jesus has come once. He's going to come again. That's just part of his nature. He loves to come to us to show us his grace, his mercy, and his love for us. And I love what the Lord does in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. He gives the same command as he did in the beginning of chapter 1, uh, but with a slight difference. And that is, he doesn't tell Jonah to cry out against the city this time. He tells him to 
preach to it. Which, of course, begs the question, preach to what? And the Lord says, well, preach the message that I tell you. Well, what's the message? You don't get to know that yet. (laughs) Just obey, and I'll tell you the next step when you get there. That's what he's telling Jonah. Reminds me of, in Hebrews 11, 8, speaking of Abraham, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he, could, which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Isn't that the most irritating way the Lord works in our lives sometimes? Where he's like, I want you to do this. Great. How do you want me to do it? I'll tell you when you get there. But what's my first step? In to get, just, just obey. Just take the next step. And then I'll tell you. Okay, just take, take the next step. That's how he works, to grow our faith, to grow our trust in him, to guide us, to provide for us. He'll tell us that next step, faithfully tell us that next step when we need to hear it. He will. It's just our job. We just got to be careful not to get ahead of him, right? Just obey and be faithful and just wait for further instructions. And if you're in that spot this evening, just be faithful. If you're waiting for the Lord to say, feel like, all right, what's next, Lord? What do I do? Just be faithful. He'll give you the instructions when you're ready or when you need it. But the Lord also doesn't reprimand or rebuke Jonah on top of everything that he's been through. And I think that's, that's a, just a beautiful thing of his compassion. He just lets the, the circumstances that Jonah has gone through, Jonah's sin has brought up these consequences. He just allows those things to sanctify and convict Jonah to bring him to repentance. And now Jonah's in the place where he can be used by the Lord again. Now he's in that right place. I'm so grateful the Lord will never discipline me or rebuke me more than necessary to bring me to that place of true repentance. He's not this just vengeful, angry God that just wants to teach me a lesson. He wants to teach me a lesson. (laughs) But the quicker we learn and repent, the quicker we can get back to the work that the Lord has for us. He won't let that lesson go longer. If we're just going to be stubborn and we're going to be hard-hearted and we're not going to learn the lesson, then we can be in, in the rebuking and the discipline of the Lord for a long time. But if we humble ourselves, we repent, we come to that place. He's not going to just continue punishment just because he wants to prove us or show us that we deserved it. So verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And this verse right here is proof to me that Jonah had truly repented, that he had cried out to God, he was aware of the consequences of his sin, and he is now actually recommitting to intentionally walk according to the Lord's ways again because he's following through. There's an action. He did what was necessary to walk in the Lord, the way of the Lord once again. This was not just an I'm sorry, God. This is not just an I'm sorry, God. Now what? Because when God told him again to go, he could have made the same choice. He could have continued to run. He still had free will. That entire prayer would have just been words if this had not followed, if he had not actually obeyed. And I have to, we have to be very careful not to confuse asking for the Lord's forgiveness with offering a heart of true repentance. Because asking for the Lord's forgiveness is there. We should. He does that for us. But repentance is our heart towards him. And so just saying, I'm sorry, God, is not a heart of true Repentance. I'd be like saying, oh, I, no, I struggle with porn and, I, and I'm really sorry, God, but I have no accountability. I watch whatever over-sexualized TV show I want to and I spend a lot of time on my computer alone in my room. What's the point? Or I, I, I know I'm not leading my family like I'm supposed to, God. I'm really sorry, but I don't spend any time in the Word. I'm, I'm at work more than I'm at home. I'm spending more time outside of the home than I am in the home. I don't devote time to, to pour into my marriage so that my wife will cherish so that... I just occupy my time with everything else, but I'm, I know I'm not leading my family, Lord, but I'm, just, I'm sorry, but I don't do any of those things. Or I, I know I should be a, a better employee at work, you know, God, I'm really sorry, but I, but I still show up to work late, and I still just do the bare minimum that's required of me, and I do it with a, with a grumpy, irritated attitude. I can't confuse just this asking for the Lord's forgiveness with offering a heart of true repentance. Because if there, is, if there is no evidence of change, then we have to question if we've ever really truly repented. If there's no evidence of change in our lives, in our heart. And that means repenting unto salvation <laughs> and putting our faith in Christ, right? Because our lives should be holy and set apart. We sang about it this evening, right? Refiner's fire, holy, I want to be like you, holy. Set apart for you, Lord. 
So it certainly absolutely should be evident in a repentance to salvation, but also in just certain sins that we're dealing with. True repentance. Again, it's maybe not just a one-time thing, but it's true repentance. It's coming before him every time, again and again. Committing yourselves, recommitting yourselves to walk according to his ways and doing things intentionally to, to walk according to his ways. Not just nonchalant, like, I'm sorry, God, and then I go on with my life because I know God's grace is there and God forgives me. That's not true repentance. It says that the city was a three-day journey in extent, which just means it takes three days to walk around the city of Nineveh. We mentioned that before, just the vastness of the city, about 60 miles around the city. And verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, so he doesn't get very far, however far in he, he gets. I have no idea, but he's not very far into it. And he cries out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I was reminded by a few people this morning of the, uh, the VeggieTales version of this. And he says, when does he say, get in, deliver the message, get out? Is that, that's the VeggieTales version of it. And this was the emphasis about of what the Lord had wanted to say. And it's interesting that he doesn't, I think this is representing part of Jonah's heart, maybe, but this is part of what the Lord wanted him to say. He doesn't focus on repentance. He's not commanding the people to repent. That's just kind of a, another uh, solution to what he's saying. That's, the res- that's what the response should be, but the message is not, you know, repent of your sins. The message is essentially judgment. <laughs> Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He doesn't focus on repentance. He focuses on what would happen to the city if they didn't repent. And that word overthrown um, is applied throughout the Old Testament to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19.25, Lamentations 4.6, and Amos 4.11. So this is not just like the city would have, like somebody come over it and somebody else would rule and some buildings would be burnt down. Like, no, the city would be overthrown. It's going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Sometimes the promises of coming judgment is the most effective message God uses to bring the lost to repentance. <laughs> that's, just, that's just true. And it's not the type of message that you just kind of preach nonchalantly and like with a smile on your face. <laughs> but it's serious. And we should do it with, with earnestness and urgency. And, well, Jonah's probably doing it with some anger and bad attitude where he just wants to see them destroyed. But the result is quite different. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. They, their response right away is the people of Nineveh believed God. I don't know how an eight-word prophecy from a man who just barely enters the city somehow gets spread to 600,000 to a million people other than by the supernatural power and working of the Holy Spirit. But they believe God, which is, I think, a supernatural understanding of who the, they knew who the message was from because they didn't say they believed Jonah. Jonah was the one talking, but they believed God. <laughs> they believed this was a message from God. And you can't believe God apart from his word. So for any true revival to occur, as it, as, as it did here in Nineveh, for any true revival to occur, it must begin with repentance in response to the faithful teaching and faithful hearing of God's word. And that's what we should be praying for in our nation, that people would be brought to repentance, true repentance, taking our sins seriously. It says they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, Right? And again, here, as an example of true repentance, the people actually respond by doing something. They fast, they deny the physical need for food to receive the sustenance, so to speak, from the Lord. They put on sackcloth, which was just a, a coarse cloth normally made from goat's hair. It was very uncomfortable. Um, so displaying the rejection of earthly comforts and pleasures and seeking the Lord instead. In a city like Nineveh, <laughs> it's like... I don't know, Las Vegas of the time? <laughs> I don't know. Like every sin imaginable was going on there. Pagan, idolatry, worship. And everyone did it from the greatest to the least of them, even to the king. The king himself responded in the same way. It wasn't just, I'm sorry, Lord. They did something about it. 
And he decrees in verse 7, he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, but, and do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. I don't know how you cover a beast with sackcloth, but uh, <laughs> cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? What a decree from the king of this type of a city. Only because he understood that judgment was coming and the message was from the Lord. And he, they, he, he's telling them, let every man cry mightily to God in verse 8. This conviction, there's, a, there's got to be conviction here as he's saying this, of the seriousness of the sin and the need for their mercy and forgiveness to be given. So much of modern day repentance is really just excuses are justifying why we sinned. It's not really repentance at all. I don't want to by any means be people that fall into that snare. I want to be people like the Ninevites here, that the king that cried mightily unto God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. It's not just, repentance is not a list of things you have to do to turn to God. It's simply just turning to God. You don't have to, it's not like a checklist of things. Now I can turn, it's just, just turn, the Lord, turn from the Lord. You were going one direction, Go the opposite direction. Do something about it. Make a change. And who can tell if God will turn and relent? Throwing themselves, as we should, at the love and mercy of God. Who knows? Maybe because of who he is, even though we don't deserve it, he will relent and he'll cause us not to perish. And so you can see all these aspects of repentance here in the Ninevites' response, just like in Jonah's. Jonah had already believed in God. That's where it all starts but you see them crying out to the Lord for his forgiveness. They see, you see an awareness of their sin and the consequences, right, that only the Lord can save us from. Maybe he will relent and turn away from his fierce anger. And then in verse 10, they commit to intentionally walk according to his ways. They must because in verse 10 it says, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. They did something about it. They did turn from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God honored the repentance of the unbeliever, just like he honored the repentance of the believer with deliverance in both ways. And one final observation as we miraculously sped through two chapters tonight. There could be a question did God relenting from his judgment make Jonah a false prophet? I don't think so at all. I think primarily God was acting in complete consistency with his word. And I'll read to you from Jeremiah real quick as we, as we close. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7. The Lord, of the, word, uh, the word of the Lord is saying, verse 7, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. It doesn't make Jonah a false prophet at all. <laughs> They're in obedience to the word of God, and God is honoring his word. The message of judgment is always an invitation from the Lord to repent. And secondly, God did judge Nineveh eventually. It did. This just delayed his judgment, like 100, 150 years, all recorded in the, in the book of Nahum. He did judge them eventually, but he still honored his word because he judged them because they had forgotten about their revival and they walked away from the Lord. That's why he judged them. So, what does that mean for us? Well, Jonah cannot effectively preach the message of repentance without coming to terms with his own need to repent. It started in his own heart first, just like it must start in his own. Once he understood that, his preaching became more effective because he had understood the deliverance of the Lord. He had understand what it meant to be brought to that place of true repentance. And by even, even if he did it in kind of like an angry way, <laughs> the Lord still used him. The Lord still used him because he was obedient. So the same goes for you and me. We have to come to the terms for the need of repentance in our own life, in our own heart first. 
Oswald Chambers says, be careful that you don't become a hypocrite by spending all your time trying to get others right with God before you worship him yourself. And so as we, as I pray and hope that our, our desire as we look at the world around us is for revival, but it begins with crying out to God for mercy and praying that he pour out his spirit that there would be an overwhelming sense of our need for repentance, of what our sin has done that brings people to their knees and crying out to the Lord and an awareness of their sin and committing to walking with him intentionally, changing their lives. And so if we want to see our Nineveh, whatever it is in our world, in our life, in our sphere of influence, if we want to see our Nineveh impacted the same way for the gospel, then that's where we begin. And we can be sure and confident that as, as we repent, that God faithfully honors and forgives. And that as we see with Jonah, praise God that he still has a plan and desires to use us for his purposes. Even, even if you're struggling with something tonight where you feel disqualified and you feel like you can't be used by the Lord because of a sin, repent. He still wants to use you. He's a God of second chances. Turn back to him. Recommit to walking with him. Amen? It's all Sam. Father, I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that even, even as we sang earlier, as we wander away, as we make these decisions that break your heart, would they break ours too? Would we realize what our sin has done, what it does every single time that we choose to, to do our own thing, Lord, instead of choosing in a way that, walking in a way that honors you in, in accordance with your word? Father, I pray that it would be our desire to see revival happen. Lord, we know that starts in our own hearts, Father. Anything that we have not repented of here, Lord, this evening, I pray that we would bring it before you, aware that you are the only one that can save us. You are, as we sang this morning, you are the solution. You're the only way. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use us and the gifts that you have given us to go out into the world, Lord, that you would bring those who don't know you to a place of repentance and surrendering their life to you, committing their life to walk in your ways, Lord, to save them from the judgment that is coming, that is imminent. Lord, I pray that we would not be nonchalant about that by any means, but we would take that very seriously, and that would ignite something within us to go forth with boldness, that we would see the lost as you do as we go out into this world. Give us the power to, to speak those things, the boldness, Lord, as only you can by your spirit. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.